Hello, welcome to Health 4.0 Leadership Podcast. We are an Ottawa-based virtual institute with the vision, personalized, proactive, and real-time health for all. The mission of this institute is to create and build leadership and capacity for Health 4.0 ecosystem through leadership summit, leadership coach, community building. Health 4.0 is defined as a shift from mass and reactive healthcare to personalized and proactive healthcare. There are seven design principles for Health 4.0. Interoperability, virtualization, decentralization, real-time capability, service orientation, modularity, safety, security, and resilience. We are hosting our annual summit on June 4. This podcast is bringing together thought leaders from across the globe and get their take on Health 4.0. My name is Namrata Bagaria and I'm your host for this podcast. Our today's guest is Professor Paul Merkley. He's a professor of music as well as a board of governor at Health 4.0 Leadership Institute. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's good to be here this morning. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. So as you know, this podcast is for Health 4.0 Leadership Institute, which aims to create and build leadership and capacity for Health 4.0 ecosystem. So can you explain to us where are you contributing in the present health ecosystem, in what capacity, and what are your top three mandates? Okay. I'm a senior. Mm-hmm. And so my own health is, well, paramount. If you don't have your own health working, you can't really help anyone else. Mm -hmm. I have uh, type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. I have had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And so so those are, I have personal health challenges that I'm working on. So that would be my first mandate. I do um, things in the community concerned with music and also concerned with bereavement because I am a widower and I've participated in in bereavement walking groups and I'm quite active and interested in that subject. And then uh, I have the great privilege of being on the board of governors of this new organization. So those are my three things. Wonderful. And thank you for sharing your story. So my question is, what were your challenges, your learnings and top three takeaways from your journey so far, and how are you planning to proceed further? All right, well, I um, I suppose I would think of my journey uh, from the time I became a widower in the fall of 2016 until now, mm-hmm. and uh, the slow recovery of purpose and meaning Okay. And a gradual recovery of purpose and meaning. And then from there, um, then from there, I did have to tend to my physical health. Suddenly, when you don't have purpose and meaning in your life, physical health may not be that important to you. And then all of a sudden, you have reasons that you want to live and do things and enjoy yourself and contribute. And oh, my goodness, it becomes important. So I had to, um, I, I had to address my blood sugar, which I had let get much too high. Uh, and I had to address it with combination of medication, diet, and walking. 
And then I had to keep refining that exercise, the physical component. Uh, I had to keep adjusting the diet. Um, if anyone has, like me, been a serial dieter over their lives and, and done many weight loss programs, often they find that they have lowered their metabolism with the different attempts, and so it's extra hard. Or if you're diabetic like me, you're going to have the issue of insulin resistance. So um, following my heart attack, I got good medical attention. Uh, it's a very fine cardiac program centered in, I live in Burlington, so it's centered in Hamilton. And on the other hand, they treat it as a hub so that at the local YMCA, uh, a lot was done for heart in the way of information, education, and rehab programs. So those are the things broadly that I've done on that. Um, it has been very informative and interesting to learn about the subject of bereavement and um, to add to it, my daughter is a student in thanatology, so I've been able to, to inquire a little bit or, or inform myself a bit professionally about that and to see how the different cultures of the world treat the process of mourning and recovery. All of that has been part of my learning. I've learned an awful lot in the past three, three and a half years. That's so wonderful that you share this. Because there's a lot of times people think that health and health ecosystem is all about doctors or technology or management, but it's also about people. It's about people who are in the community, about themselves and how they are interacting in their community with others. So I think from your top three takeaways, which is self-care, community care, and community contribution, it's very, very uh, interesting for me to learn more from your experience. So, yeah, can you specifically tell us how you envision Health 4.0? Well, I think that uh, it will grow into being an effective interface mm -hmm. between individual users out in the community and informed software informed software informed by by the best information and and the best techniques and the best ways of keeping track of things i mean i can imagine i it's easy to imagine i when i think about being a diabetic mm -hmm. it's easy to imagine things that would help me keep on track mm -hmm. a little bit like you know i think my most closest thing I've probably done commercially or experienced commercially would be Weight Watchers. And when, mm -hmm. when I do Weight Watchers, well, I have a way of tracking what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially at this time with the pandemic, uh, mm -hmm. there are online groups and so on and online support that I can get to keep informed. So somehow it's a, it's a two-way street. I input what I'm doing and I get feedback or help or support or information, whatever it seems to be that I need. So I would imagine Health 4.0 doing similar things, but in a more varied way and a more precise way and a more professional way and a more effective way in reaching people. I, I think it would be even more interactive. That's what I'm thinking.
So interactivity would be one of the key features of Health 4.0, right? And oh, yeah. uh, as you talk about it, I'm thinking from your background, and I know we chatted a little bit before about um, the possibility of having uh, video calls, social media chats, to make it more accessible to seniors who are now catching up with these technologies. So do you think these kind of technology integration to make it more interactive would make sense for Health 4.0? Absolutely, I do. And if anyone doubts that, uh, they're probably not doubting it now that we're living through the, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. we, we live in a society in, I mean, the, we live in an interactive universe. We interact with other people. That is how we learn. That is how we move forward. That is how we support each other. And now when many of these social supports the traditional kinds mm -hmm. have barriers such mm -hmm. as uh, distancing and isolation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm living alone and my partner is alone in a different city. So mm -hmm. it's essential to us that we have Skype. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, otherwise, how would we, how would we keep in touch with each other while we could phone? But, but the, 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 these techniques of, uh, intercommunication are, are so terribly, terribly important. And as you say, uh, at least six months ago, if you had asked just about any senior, they would have said, oh, I don't like to bother with that mm -hmm. new kind of communication. I myself was a slow adopter of texting, but then I saw there were reasons to text and I got my thumb out on my phone mm -hmm. and I texted along with the rest. So I think, I think that given how we live, and given the challenges, certainly the challenges of the present, bring it home how useful such technologies are in facilitating communication between us. I think that it will be very good for seniors to become more conversant with them and to use them more. Wonderful. I think this is so exciting for me to have someone who's so openly advocating technology for seniors and not just by saying it, but being like a role model and an example. And it's also exciting that that's our first podcast that we're talking about this. So this is very, very exciting. So what, exciting to me too. Yeah, so what obstacles do you see that we talk about an interactive and a technology-based communicative Health 4.0? So what obstacles to adoption do you see when designing it and what are the biggest drivers of change you think would be needed to motivate the adoption? Well, um, many seniors have, at first blush, a bit of resistance okay. to technology. They do, mm -hmm. but the more they can be made simple and direct, mm -hmm. the better. I do think that the great majority of us are used to doing things with a cell phone. Okay. And so I imagine that the more things could be done <clears throat> in that way on a cell phone, uh, the quicker it will be for seniors to adapt to it if they can just hold it. I do have friends, I do have friends who are a little older than me or I have one aunt who um, didn't really cotton to cell phones when they tried it, mm -hmm. but the great majority of seniors will use a cell phone, will see the usefulness in that, and seem to seem to go quickly to, to make the transition from just using it as a telephone to using other capabilities. So I think I think that the that the phone will 
the ownership of cell phones, which is very high, the, the rate of it, as you know, is very high in Canada and, and in other countries in the world, some places higher than here, I think that will drive the technology. I think that our tendency to live in smaller groups or even alone as I do will drive the technology because there is a, there is a physical isolation and I think that will make people want to overcome it. Mm -hmm. um, and the, of course, the new technologies themselves will will help. Uh, I guess eventually we'll have, um, we, you know, many of us will have fiber coming into the houses, and that will open up yet more possibilities for high volume exchange of information. So, mm -hmm. I, I think the future is really exciting for it. Wow! Wow! Yeah, I mean. I have a question. I'm going to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here. So now when we're talking about seniors, because we are in Canada and people live quite long here, what mm -hmm. are we referring to within seniors? Well, I kind of treat 60 as a benchmark. Mm -hmm. um, so I can get some discounts at age 60. I'm 64. Mm -hmm. uh, some people say 65, but I think of age 60, somewhere in the 60s, is probably an age in which the health problems people face are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Probably a larger percentage of the population retires in those years, and um, maybe their preoccupations shift a bit, as as mine have. Mm -hmm. And um, well, problems like uh, being widowed, losing family members. These things, I think, tend to accumulate mm -hmm. more or less in the 60s and, and going upwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I had read somewhere, and I don't remember the exact, um, exact reference, but within seniors, one is the very senior category, and one is the senior, like, say, 60 to 70 or 80-something, and then there's mm -hmm. 80 and above. Um, and do you think those kind of distinctions are important when you define health 4.0? Because maybe those generations have a different tech onboarding requirement. Yes, I do. So, so when I was thinking of of people, the two people I know who have great difficulty with cell phones and didn't really warm up to them, uh, one of them is 84. Okay. Uh, my aunt is 84, and uh, it is a different generation. Mm -hmm. And um, her willingness to her comfort in talking about some things is different than it is in my generation. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think there's a generational difference um, somewhere in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, at the same time, um, often these generations are grouped together for different situations. When I when I was uh, participating regularly in bereavement walking groups, mm -hmm. uh, we had quite a span of ages in there. Mm -hmm. uh, more women than men because there are more widows than widowers. But mm -hmm. um, there were um, one of the men that I walked with frequently is uh, 84 today. And uh, now he has no problem with um, technology at all. Mm -hmm. Some people, uh, you can have someone in their 80s who's perfectly conversant with it. So... What do you think were the drivers for you or for your friend? What are these drivers which make you change? One is not wanting to be isolated. So that's a very personal motivation. 
could mm -hmm. peer feedback or could uh, need for learning or these could be other motivations that you see as adoptions? They or? certainly are. They certainly are. There's no question. Peer feedback, yes, and the need for learning, no question. Um, mm -hmm. Essentially, I guess I would say that probably a person's motivation for change is that they're facing new circumstances. And let's talk about, let's say, a new health challenge of some kind. So they face it and they say, well, I could use some support. I could use some information. Mm -hmm. So there we are, the two things you said. It would be nice to have some feedback from peers. It would be nice to have some way of learning about what you have. Mm -hmm. uh, these, um, I've seen it certainly at the YMCA when I, I went to the uh, the post well, the, the cardiac rehab program, the, the information talks, the educating talks, mm -hmm. oh, you see people just thirsty for information about their condition. And, and often someone's spouse would come in too. I want to know why John had a heart attack and what I can do to help prevent the next one, of course. So I guess maybe that's another way to put it is I believe there's a strong interest in prevention. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe more than there was in the past. And I see it as two ways. I see, because of my background in healthcare and technology, I see, I see two things. Sometimes the prevention is not upfront until the thing happens. So it comes out of rehabilitation. And then the second time the prevention is driven by, okay, I've been through this. I don't want to go through this again. So, so I think that's exactly happening. right. I think that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I that's think that's in, the, in my case, anyway, that's exactly right, both for diabetes and for heart issues. That that captures it very neatly and it's well put. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because some of the experiences that I've had with individuals in the community myself, for example, uh, you may pair up a senior with a young individual who can help operate. So like and at the same time, they have companionship and company. And uh -huh. um, so that's one model I have seen in some places. And in some places, definitely peer-to-peer -peer learning. And the other third factor, which we probably didn't touch in this, is also the need to connect with their grandchildren or their relatives. And that becomes such a high need and a driver to stay connected with family and roots uh, that there is a certain amount of adoption that comes in through uh, technology, you know, for technology. That's like me in texting. That's like me in texting. If my daughter texts and my grandchildren text, I'm going to text. That's all. Everything you've said is right on. And um, yeah, you, it, so I had my heart attack. Uh, well, I did realize uh, mm -hmm. when I got out of the hospital that I was misinformed or, or not misinformed, but imperfectly informed about some things. And I thought, oh my goodness, mm -hmm. I actually, when you get down to it, don't understand what's going on at all and what I should do, what I need to do. And that was a big motivator to get learning and to, uh, well, yes, it's that kind of prevention you say. You didn't know that you were going to have a heart attack till by golly, you had it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you say, I've got to prevent the next one. I can't let this happen again because the next one could be fatal. The next one could yeah. uh, leave me incapacitated. I, I'm fortunate enough to have gotten this far through that. 
Yeah, and for many people, they may not be an next one, you know, because... Uh, well, so that's I, it, isn't it? I come from that's a South Asian heritage, uh, my background, and uh, most of the times you don't make it to the first one. And um, this is, I think, becomes very crucially important to understand that while the adoption does happen for a lot of people in rehabilitation, we may might as well use these people as champions uh, and peer uh, leaders for the ones who've not had it in the first place and somehow find, find methods in community to build, you know, maybe um, a tech community, tech onboarding, you know, like a tech night or tech talks or things like that. So that there is a peer buy-in, you know, so, I think that's a very good idea. I think that's a very good idea. I, in my own case, I, I learned uh, not at the time, but after the fact that I was very lucky to make it through that night mm -hmm. uh, and that, and that it was surprising that I had. Um, and so, yes, you're right. Many people wouldn't have a second chance. Those of us who have a second chance, oh yes, if we can, uh, uh, help inform in any way and and bring it to people's attention that there may not be a second chance. I would I would support that entirely. Yeah, and I think this goes also to showing these kind of podcasts or um, presenting these kind of podcasts to people in the government and showing them that they need to get over the fact that seniors don't want to use technology. We have the next generation of seniors who are onboarded or who can mm -hmm. train the next uh, peers. And this is very important to open up the regulations around reimbursements, around incentives for adoption through doctors, because today, like when COVID-19 happened and when uh, different provinces said, okay, we're gonna reimburse you when you do teleconsultation for COVID-19. That's, that's what drove the adoption from a doctor's side. And then again, from the patient's side. So I think those kind of things, because if you think about if someone has to drive all the way, being a senior from one part of where they are to the other part, just to see a regular checkup appointment, I think it's pretty mm -hmm. darn inconvenient. And, um, and the second part is, it's not just about your doctor, it's also about what you're doing every day. If somehow we can give them feedback, hey, person ABC, you didn't go out today or you should call this person or that person and kind of help, like become like an assistant to living more independently. I think that's a strong buy-in for a Canadian society where independent living is a value which drives a lot of people. <clears throat> I do too. <clears throat> when you think about it, um... I know, well, for three months after my heart attack, I was not allowed to drive. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so yes, it meant taking a taxi to an appointment or, um, well, that's what it meant, paying for the taxi and doing that. Mm -hmm. and so to your first thing, yes, uh, and, and uh, we're not improving anything by having seniors on the road longer than necessary. A car, oh. um, and lots of them would, would rather not be... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. driving some like their car some are attached that's again i think a uh, the generation that's that's older than me more i think people my age would say no if i don't have to get out drive a car i'm not going to mm -hmm. um secondly <clears throat> my phone keeps track of so many things already i track my diet on it and it counts my steps it counts what i've done it says oh you've been walking oh this and that it wouldn't seems to me 
be that difficult to get it to keep track of other preventive health measures and in general efforts that I'm making. And then for me to be able to um, share that with a coach mm-hmm. or someone else. Um, lots of us, I think, use uh, services when we have a blood test that we can look at our own results. And that's interesting. There's some kind of explanation and it makes the follow-up appointment with the GP more interesting. And in some cases that could certainly be done over the phone or um, in some electronic means. I mean, I have a blood test and, and go in and I take a doctor's time in that doctor's office and the doctor says, oh, good, your blood sugar is within the proper range. We'll leave your medication where it is. Mm-hmm. And that's taken an appointment. He's built the system for it. Uh, I've taken the time to go there. It may have been inconvenient. Mm-hmm. And maybe he was late. And maybe I made them run later. And all of it could have been done more quickly, as, as we're finding out at the present time with COVID-19, mm-hmm. when many clinics are being done over the phone. Mm-hmm. And I think what another two aspects as you were talking are in my head, because uh, we also need to consider social determinants of health and not every senior can afford a taxi or driving. So that's mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. and income because we know a lot of seniors are in precarious housing and financial situations. And That's the right. second thing that I think of is within within the social determinants, maybe not everybody can afford a data plan. And that's why we need to have flexible models where tele, which is pure telephone, and yeah. app-based are both integrated, which is not so difficult today. It's pretty much like, like you're talking to me on Zoom right now, and you are through your phone mm-hmm. and I'm through my computer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, integrative technology does exist. Uh, that's true. That's a very important point. And um, because that's right, we mustn't assume that everyone is buying a big data plan or prepared mm-hmm. to pay for that. I agree entirely. Yeah, because a lot of seniors may live in homes or in uh, moving situations. Um, and, and, and I think this is a very good good discussion uh, that we had today about Help 4.0, which somehow drove towards Help 4.0 is not so futuristic like 2030, but it's so now, it's so, um, you know, uh, senior friendly, it's so interactive. And that leads me to my next question that we've discussed your vision and challenges according to you in this ecosystem. And we are also excited to share with the listeners that you'll be present at the summit this year so what are your expectations from the summit and what are you contributing towards it? Well, um, I think it will be very enriching because as far as I've seen, there's quite a variety of expertise represented mm-hmm. and a variety of interests. So, um, the, you know, the interdisciplinarity of what you're doing is, is, exciting and necessary right to have to think of it uh, the human dimension the medical dimension the technological dimension there are different facets to what you're doing and you've assembled a very interesting group of people so i suppose i'm i'm expecting i'm expecting i'm going to learn a lot and i'm expecting that i'm going to get inspired 
about possibilities. I thought of something else from the last question. Could I insert it quickly? Is that sure, okay? Sure, sure. Um, the, the night of my heart attack, yeah. um, I did not have the symptoms that I had read about. I had read about pain, angina, mm -hmm. uh, a psychological feeling of imminent death. I didn't have those symptoms. I knew my heart rate was too high. So I called telehealth. That's mm -hmm. an Ontario feature, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, explained the symptoms mm -hmm. and was told to go to the emergency department. Mm -hmm. So that action, mm -hmm. had I not had telehealth, I might have just said, oh, it's indigestion. I'll sleep on it and see how I feel in the morning, which might have been my last act on this earth. That could have been it. I could have had the heart attack in the night and been uh, done in. As it is, I got to the hospital and got proper treatment. Um, they cardioverted, and I'm here to have this interview with you and do all the things I do. But just to think how important telehealth was that night for me. Mm -hmm. sorry, to, sorry to interrupt your discourse, but no, I just wanted no, to insert that. Because actually, um, the second part of the question, I'm going to put it back at you because I know your background a little bit. It's how mm -hmm. I'm contributing. And I know in the past you were on accreditation committees for graduate level courses, That's right. including medical and healthcare. So how do you think with your past experience, one is as a community leader and a person, which you mentioned extensively in this interview, and uh, could you touch a bit more about accreditation? Because where I see, and you've mentioned this, interdisciplinary education is happening. I myself, I'm a PhD candidate at University of Ottawa. I'm doing my PhD in engineering. My background is medical. Uh, I did a medical degree from India. I'm a doctor from India and I had a master's in public health from US. So for me, this is a question like, how do you see this being accredited? How do you see? Because so far we have few models and as the world really gets into seriously delivering healthcare, you will need different kinds of standards, different kinds of accreditation. So how can you contribute? I, I hope that I can. Um, the, the idea of someone like me being involved in accreditation is a sort of overview, not from a not from a discipline specific standpoint because it's always someone always we receive reports from people in the discipline uh, this mm -hmm. this program seems solid it seems like mm -hmm. this but especially in the case of the new program to mm -hmm. take a good overview of it and see does it have the necessary resources are there things that seem to be working well will students complete promptly are they properly advised and followed and all of these questions, I think, are complicated in the case of an interdisciplinary endeavor, which this will be and much ne must necessarily be, because the, the technology has gone very far forward, mm -hmm. and so has our medical knowledge, mm -hmm. and so have the social needs and, the, and our, our willingness to address them. Mm -hmm. So I feel that there will be a great importance in accreditation because I think there will be lots of new programs and lots of variety of programs and that they'll have to be encouraged and watched over a little bit to be helped along. Um, okay. Ontario has had one of the, when I was working on it, one of the strongest 
accreditation program in North America. We were very proud of it. And um, a lot of the work was just recommending that a program make a little change here or there, tweak this or that, and um, I, I think it worked very well. So I, I believe it will be important in the future. Yeah, and for me, and this is a question I would like to learn from you, because I also see a rise in non-traditional institutes like Health 4.0 Leadership Institute we are in. And, oh, yes. Um, because it takes time within a traditional into, uh, institute to set up, you know, the, these kind of norms. How can we learn from accreditation or... We are fortunate to have you as a board of government. Uh, that's a really good question because, because the principles are the same. You know, mm -hmm. The principles are the same, but of course, as an institute, mm -hmm. it's possible for us to be more nimble mm -hmm. than, let's say, an academic department. An academic department has uh, certain strictures and certain status quo mm -hmm. that actually impedes its ability to adapt. Mm -hmm. Whereas an institute is more flexible, can be very quick in, in adaptation. On mm -hmm. the other hand, probably follows the same general principles. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I think that's very wise, what you just said. And if you guys want to hear more of such discussions, I would totally recommend you go on to www.health4.tech and register for the summit. And I would like to thank Paul for giving your time to the morning. It's been wonderful having you. And thank you for being the first guest on our very first show. It's a very great privilege. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I wish all of you a great day ahead. Enjoy.